Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from five-star app meditation studio and Muse, the brain-sensing headband that gives you feedback on your meditation practice. I'm Patricia Karpus, co-founder of Meditation Studio and your host on Untangle, along with my co-host, Muse founder, Ariel Garten. This month, we're focusing on happiness. What is it? How do you invite more of it into your life? How do we actually find more meaning, fulfillment, and purpose? Each guest this month will help Ariel and I explore this topic. As always, if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions, especially on the subject of happiness, email us at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. Today's guest is Yale professor of psychology, Lori Santos. Lori taught psychology and the good life first in spring 2018 in response to concerning levels of student depression, anxiety, and stress on campus. It became the most popular class in Yale's history. Next, Coursera offered the course online, calling it the science of well-being, and to date, over 400,000 people have taken the course. Lori Santos has definitely hit a nerve. The good news is that we have a lot more control over our happiness levels than we might think. Lori talks about the fact that happiness is like a leaky tire, and happy people know how to fill up the tire when it starts to deflate. It's not fixed, she says, and there are many simple behaviors and practices we can do to impact it. She talks about how we can put the science to work in our lives. Now, here's Lori. Lori Santos, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. I'm so excited about this topic. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with this question of, and I know you get asked this all the time, but why is this course the most popular course at Yale? Like what's happening in our world that this kind of course becomes the most popular course? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just that students are voting with their feet. You know, I mean, what we see on college campuses, this includes Yale, but not specific to Yale, it's lots of college campuses, is that students are facing this mental health crisis. Over 40% of college students nationally report being too depressed to function most of the time. Over 60% say that they feel overwhelmingly anxious. And over 12% say that they have seriously considered suicide in the last year, right? Like more than 10%, right? Wow. So like... They want an answer to what they could be doing better. And sadly, I think society and everything they've been taught isn't giving them great ideas about what they can do better. And so I think when they saw this class, this idea of taking a scientific approach to what really leads to well-being, they kind of really went for it and went for it in numbers that we totally didn't expect. It was kind yeah. of a little surreal on campus to have over a thousand students shopping the class and trying to figure out where to put them. Eventually we had to teach the course in a concert hall. So yeah, it was a little overwhelming, wow. but but it meant a lot. Again, I think they really want solutions. They don't like this culture of feeling so overwhelmed all the time. Yeah. And I guess just for a second, I want to talk about that mental health crisis, because why are we so depressed and anxious? And why do you think those suicide numbers are so high? So they yeah. arrive at Yale, they're coming to you with these challenges. Yeah, we have good national data for college students. We have less good data, I think, for high school students. But you know, the data we do have suggests that those levels of depression and anxiety, even suicidality and suicidal thoughts, we're seeing them in high school and in some cases even in middle school. So something has gone wrong. What yeah. has gone wrong is a really tricky scientific question because the honest answer is we just don't know. It's probably a set of all kinds of different factors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people point the finger at technology, which I think there is something there, there. Technology does 
decrease people's yeah. social connection and decrease your real connection in real life. It also hurts things like sleep with students, which can, I actually think if we could get my, our college students and high school students to sleep, we could solve a lot of the mental health crisis on campus. Right, um, right. But it's not just like, let's blame Facebook and social media. What we really find is that there's a lot of different things going on in this generation from like an incredible obsession with accolades and grades and performance at the expense of learning to real anxieties about what their future jobs and their future will entail. Yeah, lots of fear around all of that. When you started thinking that this would be a course that you would like to create and teach, did you begin by doing a new research study or was the process more like collecting all of the research that already exists? I mean, how did you come up with this particular curriculum, which is, seems to have really struck a chord with so many people. Yeah. So I'm a professor of psychology, like already my, my focus is on cognitive biases and comparative mm-hmm. cognition and things. So positive psychology wasn't exactly my focus, but I've learned a lot about it through the years. I've been involved in some projects with Marty Seligman group. He's kind of thought of as really the, the father of the sort of science of happiness approach. Yeah. And so I kind of retrained a little bit, but I did a lot of work kind of looking at other versions of classes like this. One, a big one was uh, Tal Ben-Shahir's course. I know you just had on your podcast recently. Right, Um, yeah. Kind of looked at what other people had done and it used a lot of that, but also built in a little bit more on how students could build up their habits. Like really trying to think not just about what the science says, but how they could apply that science in their daily life. And is there a lot about the habit change? Was that a big focus for you? How do yeah, we actually right, change? I think, and that was a lot for myself. Now I, mm-hmm. I consider myself an expert on all the science of this stuff, but am I as happy as I could be? Am I implementing these things all the time in my daily life? Yeah. No, sadly. Yeah. <laughs> I cause your listeners to think like, why are we listening to this lady if she can't even... <laughs> But, you know, I mean, like it's one thing to know what you're supposed to do, but it's another to actually apply it in your own life. And I thought we need to not just hear what the science says about well-being. We need to learn what the science says about how do we build in good habits? How do we use things like social support and repetition to get ourselves to do these behaviors that we all know we really want to do? It's just hard to implement them. So hard to implement. And I think about that all the time. Like, what are the conditions and what are the practices that we need to do to actually change our behaviors? Because so often people come to the table thinking, I am who I am. And maybe they'll go to therapy and they'll try and change certain things. But I think, and we'll get into this a little bit later, these daily practices that you recommend can make such a big difference on making these like small changes bit by bit. So and, I, and I think yeah. a couple of things there. Like one is yeah. that they don't often require that much time, I think, especially given the yeah. amount of time we put into these other assumptions about what will make us happy, working to get more money in these things. We're talking about 10 minutes of meditation a day or three minutes to take time for gratitude or a quick 15 minute call to connect with a friend you haven't talked to in a while. I think part of the problem is that we really have mistaken notions about how happiness works. One of them is that happiness is kind of a, an achievement you get to, you know, it's like a promotion on the job, right. you know, happily ever after, right? But the research suggests that happiness kind of doesn't work like that. If more than anything, happiness is like a leaky tire, where like, even if you feel good now, if you don't kind of do activities, they're going to kind of bring you up over time, it'll sort of fade. And so what sets happy people apart is that they're really good at filling up their leaky happiness tire. They fill their day with quick conversations with people or a little bit of gratitude or some time to be mindful. Like they're doing these behaviors all the time that are filling Mm -hmm. up the tire. 
so if I look from the distance, like those happy people, they just have bigger tires than I do, or they leak less often, but that's not true. It just seems like they're good at filling them up on a regular basis. And so we do that ourselves through our behaviors. Yeah. And I like the idea that you talk about, we do have control over changing those behaviors, even if we don't always have control over changing our particular situations. You talked about this a little bit, but what are some of the other really common misconceptions about happiness that you see? You certainly talk about money doesn't necessarily make us happy. Will you talk a little bit about all these misconceptions that you've discovered? Yeah, and I think that's really the key that science teaches us is that we have these misconceptions. Our theories about how happiness works, our theories about what will make us feel good, and the motivations we have about how to act in the world, oftentimes they're just kind of wrong. One is this idea that happiness is fixed. I can't really change it. I'm happy at the level I'm at, and that's it. Completely wrong. All the research suggests that we can intervene on our happiness. And the way we intervene is not through our circumstances. It's not getting a new relationship or getting a new job or moving to a new house. Like It really is through our behaviors, like simple behaviors, like taking time to be mindful and grateful and so on. Another misconception is kind of at the motivational level. It's like, it's sort of the choice of like, I could do X or I could do Y. What's going to make me feel good? Turns out a lot of those choices we get wrong too. And the biggest one I see, I see this in my college students all the time, is when it comes to social connection. So often, and I I can experience this too, you know, I'm having a bad day at work and I'm like, now I'm just going to plop down by myself and watch some Netflix. Right. I don't want to see anyone today. But it turns out that the data suggests that that's just wrong. That even a quick conversation with a priest at a coffee shop will improve my mood much more than I expect. And so that's one that we're kind of constantly getting wrong. We're making these mispredictions about how self-focused we're supposed to be. And I think this is a spot where culture kind of messes us up. You know, there's all this discussion about self-care, treat yourself and kind of these things. But all the data suggests that's just wrong. Like it's not about the self, it's about connecting with others. And it's even about focusing on the happiness of others. People who volunteer for charity, people who spend time helping others, people who donate money to others. Those people, by and large, are happier than the folks that don't. So I think we even have this mistaken notion of like happiness is all about us, 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 but that turns out to be wrong. That's so interesting because we spend a lot of time talking on this podcast, certainly about mindfulness, but also about self-compassion. That's different than being like self-focused and self-centered. It's more this sort of ability to be able to self-soothe, to take care of yourself and your emotional life. And some of the way we do that is through connecting with others. You've probably seen, you know, the research on doing meditation on compassion allows you to kind of feel more compassion for the self, but it also increases loving kindness and empathy for other people. The compassion we give to ourselves can be kind of part and parcel of how we interact with others. And so I think when we're trying to be compassionate with ourselves and trying to take care of ourselves, we forget that that doesn't mean go hide on a desert island. That means being a social primate and making connections with other people even if we're kind of not feeling it, even if we're in our maximally introverted mood or we have a maximally introverted personality, it turns out the research suggests we're better off trying to make more connections than we think. We hear that often, that community and connecting with people is so important. So I'm really (laughs) glad that you said that. Are there other misconceptions? Yeah, I think another one that resonates a lot with what you talk about on your podcast is how we think about time and time well spent. You know, particularly my students, they feel like, oh, I'm just going to be anxious if I have any, any time off or guilty, right? I just want to right. feel it moving towards all those accolades and studying and so on. But all the recent research is pointing to the power of, I think, two things that suggest that's wrong. One, as you know, is mindfulness, right? That we need just some space to be 
part of the present moment. And if we're constantly running from one thing to the next, we're just not going to get the space to do that. But a second thing that the research is coming out showing really is powerful is what folks have been calling time affluence, which is this sense that you're really wealthy in time. It's sort of the opposite of what many of us feel, which is time famine, where you feel like literally famished for time. And right. It shows that the phenomenology of it, like what we experience when we're time famished is almost like hunger famine, where we get desperate and we're triaging. And so it's powerful because if you can just gift yourself a little bit of time affluence, it can be incredibly powerful for boosting your mood and kind of just making you feel like you can process things and really deal with the stuff that you have on your plate and not feel so overwhelmed. My favorite example of this from my course is that I was going to teach my Yale students about time affluence, the whole lecture of all these different studies about time affluence and how it works. And I found it so ironic because I'm like, they are so time famished. They have no idea what that feels like to them when it's right. a whole hour of their time teaching them this. So I did this funny thing where I gifted them some time affluence. Students showed up to class and my teaching assistants were handing out these flyers that said, no class today. We're going to teach you about time affluence. We're going to give you some of it. So you have a free hour and a half that you didn't expect. And I knew my students would find this so foreign. I kind of gave them a list of things to do. It was like, you could meditate. You could hang out with a friend. (laughs) And what was amazing was how students reacted and they were overjoyed at having an hour and a half off. And two of the students even burst into tears. And one of the students who burst into tears, she said, this was the first free hour and a half she's had all semester, like first free time she's had. And again, hopefully not all of us, not all of your listeners are that extreme, but you know, there are times in our life when we can feel like that, where it's like, and that's the kind of cool thing about the research. It's not the objective amount of time you have. It's really your subjective feeling of how much free time you have. So you yeah. can without too much actual time spent. I get this occasionally yeah. if a meeting is canceled at work and I show up, I'm like, oh, no meeting today, you know, free half hour. That can feel like, oh my God, like a breath of enormous pressure. You know, I feel like I can <sighs> language or take up a new sport. It's, and it's only a half hour. It can, right. Only a half hour can feel so powerful. Yeah. No, that's so great. Well, you had the students take a happiness quiz. Was that in the first day of class? Yeah. And so we use this kind of standard, the sad thing about happiness research is that there's no thermometer, right? Like it'd be great if I could just, students could walk in, I could get their exact happiness level, but that's tricky. So (laughs) what researchers do is we rely on self-report. The self-report skills we use can sometimes seem like a silly BuzzFeed quiz, but actually they're really well-validated scientific instruments. And so I had students do one of these scientific instruments. It's one that was developed by the group at UPenn. It's called PERMA, mm-hmm. which is an acronym for Positive Emotions, Engagement, Relationships, Meaning, and Accomplishments. So it kind of gets at all kinds of different facets of positive emotion and kind of well-being. And so students took that before and after the end of the class. They do that in my live class, but also in the online class I teach. And I think that that's really important in part because a lot of us really want to improve our well-being, but unless we have a good gauge on where we are at the start, it's not clear that the kinds of practices we're engaging in are really helping. And so I encourage all my students, maybe even listeners to your show, to they're going to be engaging in these kinds of practices to feel better. How are they actually measuring whether or not that's working? Yeah. And were they surprised by the before and after? I actually did take the quiz while I was uh-huh. researching for this podcast. And I found it's so interesting because you can see how simple it might be to change some of the answers just by making some simple changes. So I'd be curious, like, were the students blown away at the before and after? 
Yeah, well, this was one of the dirty secrets about my class, which kind of was in part because the class was so overwhelming. Like, I actually didn't get in place in time the pre and post measures so that I could study them, like like scientifically, you know, with like a yeah. approved protocol and that kind of thing. So they kind of got the answers and anecdotally reported to me. But a lot of the students were really surprised the things that they didn't realize were going to matter a lot didn't mm-hmm. fact change their well-being. And I think the things that students reported the most were things like meditation, something I know we talk a lot about on this yeah. podcast, right? That right. You know, they yeah. didn't realize that that five minutes a day, which at first just felt like this is a waste, I should be working, like could give them such clarity. Another one that was really powerful for students was gratitude. Students yes. are so yeah. used to kind of thinking about all that's going wrong and kind of FOMO about what other people are doing that when they really flipped the switch and they said, you know, what am I grateful for? it kind of really changed this resilience they had when bad things happen. They get a bad midterm grade that, that they're like, they're like, I'm thinking of all the things I'm grateful for. Like my parents are alive. Like I'm healthy. Like who cares about this stupid midterm grade? And so those <laughs> kinds of practices can really yeah. put you know, things that you wouldn't have in the right perspective into a much better mm. way. And how do our expectations about life play into our feelings about our happiness? Because you talk a little bit about being surprised by our own expectations. I'm just curious about that because I think we sort of grow up with all of these cultural expectations about how we're supposed to be, how we're supposed to live our lives. And so I would imagine that that would be the hardest sort of block to move. Yeah, I think that's right. I think when people start hearing these findings, things like money doesn't really matter for happiness as much as you think. And my students, your grades don't matter for happiness as much as they think. My students see studies showing that Students who have the highest grades in high school actually have the lowest levels of well-being and the lowest levels of self-worth, right? They see these findings and they kind of want to push back and fight about it a little bit. After I remember when I gave my lecture showing that money doesn't really matter for happiness. And after about 75K in the US right now, you're not, even if you double or triple your salary, you're not going to improve your well-being. And I had this huge line of students after class who kind of wanted to fight with me about it a little bit. Like, well, what if you spend your $200,000 a little bit differently? Like, what about that? Or what if you grew up in a poor family? And they kind of wanted to have some pushback. And I think that's because these expectations are so strong. I mean, part of them comes from the expectations we get from society. But I think our mind is just built to expect that certain things work for yielding more well-being and other things don't. And our just ideas are so off. It's just mm-hmm. hard to overcome them. And, and I get that too. It's like, if I was looking at bonus and salary or, you know, as I'm making my podcast about, you know, like advertising and stuff, it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Like that's not actually going to matter, but it's really hard to shut off those intuitions. It's really hard because these are ways that we measure ourselves. And so it's nice to have that bigger perspective that says, Hey, this is just one piece of the bigger picture. And you did a rewirement challenge. Yeah. What <laughs> is kind of, a silly term? I kind of made it up. It's like, oh, okay. I like in, it. In college, we're dorks, right? So we have we have course requirements. Yes. Rewirements were kind of suggested homework, but to change your happiness levels. So these were just weekly, basically, just like I assigned students, hey, read this scientific article. I also assigned students, hey, do this gratitude practice. Take time to learn about your strengths, take time to meditate, take time to exercise, and so on. And students got one of these every single week. And what I told students is, you know, I'm not going to grade you on these requirements. Yale's not going to let me give you an A for the course because you meditated this week. But these requirements, if you really want to feel better, they're more important than reading these Mm -hmm. papers and how you do in the midterm. Like, 
they're really what's going to govern whether or not this class works in terms of making you feel better. And it was really powerful. I think it was powerful for me, right? Because these are practices that I aspire to do on a regular basis, but I don't often achieve. And having a whole class of a thousand students who are working on them with me, I felt like, all right, if I don't get up and meditate this morning, I'm kind of letting them down. And so assigning them the rewirements made me a happier person because I was doing these practices too. Well, yeah. And I do think that there's something about doing these practices, knowing that there's a group that's doing it, and then you're coming back each week and being able to report on it. What are the rewirement practices? So I know you talk about like the top 10 ways for us to be happier. Are those part of the rewirement challenge? Could you go over that list of yeah, the top yeah, 10? Again, awesome. they, they sound, they can sound kind of hokey and also like, you know, hippy dippy is one of my students wrote to me. is like, this sounds like hippy dippy kind of California stuff. And it's like, yep, that's, like, that's what works. Yeah. And so uh, the rewirements included things like this week, you have to try to make new social connections, whether that's with a stranger at the coffee shop or, you know, a student in the dining hall or call a friend you haven't talked to in a while. You have to explicitly take 15, 20 minutes a day to make a social connection. They were things like taking time for gratitude, explicitly scribbling down three things at the end of the day you're grateful for, or an even bigger rewirement, doing what's called a gratitude letter, where you thank someone that you probably should have thanked a long time ago, but you haven't had a chance to do that. Sit down for 20 minutes and write the letter to them. In the best case scenario, meet up with that person and read it to them. They'd be things like meditation. For students who have meditated before, you know, get back into your practice. And if you haven't meditated before, try it for five minutes with a quick guided meditation. Things like taking time to do nice things for others. You know, we had a random acts of kindness challenge where you had to do something nice for others. And that was fantastic to see on campus with so many students taking the class because it meant everybody is kind of doing these nice things. And we have a coffee shop in the residential college where I live called the Acorn. And early that week, someone bought the coffee for the person behind them. They're like, give this person a free coffee, the next person who comes in. But then no one wanted to break the chain. So for like two, oh, nice. like whenever you walked in, you hear like someone before you bought your coffee, you're like, oh my gosh, like I want to buy the next person's coffee. So, uh, oh, so that's nice. And then do things that you don't often think of as happiness practices, but can be really powerful for improving our mood. So exercise, for example, we prescribe students to do a half hour of cardio a day and for students who are able enough to do that. And that's profound. There's research suggesting that a half hour of cardio is as effective as a prescription of Zoloft for reducing depression symptoms. But the big one, and I think the hardest challenge for my students was actually sleep because we told them for this week, please try to get seven to eight hours of sleep a night, which for college students is like pretty tough. But that's another one where we forget how important sleep is for mood. You can see significant reductions in mood for just a few nights of deprived sleep. And deprived sleep can be as little as or as much as five hours a night count as deprived sleep and can have serious impacts on well-being. So mm-hmm. yeah, so prescribing, you know, there's a strange Yale course that's prescribing students to like take time to sleep. <laughs> you know, time, like take a nap. Um, I love it. So we did. So those are the big things. Make new social connections, gratitude, meditations, do kind acts for other people, exercise, which is probably sleep. cardio getting your heart rate up and sleep, which is so difficult. And one thing we tell students is if you can, there are ways you can combine these all the better. So extra points and exercise, if you are talking to somebody doing it and doing a form of exercise where you really can be mindful, like group yoga or take a friend to yoga class, but you really kind of have time to be present and mindful all the better. How would you teach a class like this to like a 
middle school. And do you think that there is a course like this that should start earlier in our lives? Yeah, I actually think it's sad that we don't focus on this kind of well-being education even earlier, especially since the stats suggest even if I can take effect on my students who are at Yale, like I might be too late, right? You know, they might be dealing with crises that they got in middle school or high school. The good news is I think the science of well-being, I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Everything I've just told you, you know, I could tell a 10-year-old and they would get. And so I think if there are parents listening or educators, like there's really easy things you can do to bring these things into a classroom or even into a home. Think about saying a few things you're grateful for at the dinner table or really trying to focus on having some time to be present or family meditation together. Like these are all things we can start instituting in our own families and our own lives. And I think it's not just the practices, it's really understanding the science. And so both with this new podcast, The Happiness Lab, we have coming out, we've tried to set it up so that it's the kind of thing that you could listen to as a middle schooler. You know, it's the kind of thing a family could listen to together when everybody's making dinner together. And even our online Coursera class, which we've kind of put a version of the Yale class online for free. You know, it started, it was aimed at college students, but I have lots of families who are middle school students, high school students who watch this together. It's kind of like a Netflix lecture series. You can kind of just binge watch it. And they say, I'm so happy that I was able to do this with my kids because it allowed us to have conversations about what really matters and what practices they should be focused on. And some of the barriers to those practices, a lot of parents who watch the lectures and listen to the podcast with their kids will say, I didn't know how bad my child's sleep was getting and how stressed they were about exams and stuff. And we had conversations about what we can do to develop better sleep hygiene or feel less stressed and so on. And so I think it really is a family affair. Once you understand the habits that matter, you can start to put those into place. Yeah. And there are so many parents who just don't have the skill set to be able to teach these skills to their children. And so Mm -hmm. this idea of taking the Coursera course together is amazing. And I think the last statistic I had heard was you've had over 100,000 people take that course online. It's humbling. We're now at over 400,000 people. Oh my God. Yeah. That's crazy. 220 different countries, which is just awesome. It's it's so amazing. But I think what it suggests is like, we're not alone. You know, I started this class looking at my Ivy League kids. I'm like, oh my gosh, they just really need some help. But so many of us feel like we're overwhelmed and not flourishing. And like, I think the frustration is I feel like we all feel like we're working at it. We're working at our careers. We're working to achieve what we need to. We're working to help our families. And it feels like we're doing something wrong. And I think the science suggests we might be. If we're following what the mind is telling us, we often are doing stuff that's wrong. There are really easy things we can do to make things better. Well, which is why it's mind-blowing how much this resonated with so many people. I think the idea of people being able to find ways to be happier in terms of well-being, to think of it in terms of being your best self and to be able to connect with each other It just feels like this course has so much of that in it in a way that's so accessible to most people. That's what I think is the brilliance of it is that it is simple and accessible and it speaks a language that I think a lot of people can really understand. We didn't realize it was going to resonate so broadly, but it's cool that it does. And I think in some ways it makes sense, right? Right. All of us have a spiritual practice in the way that many of us did hundreds of years ago. Not all of us are as connected with a a really tight culture that pushes us in the right direction. 
a lot of us are kind of figuring it out on our own and we need some skills there. We need some skills. We absolutely need some skills. What is the Happiness Lab? Will you tell us a little bit about that? The Happiness Lab is a kind of podcast version of everything I teach in the class. But like I'm a nerdy professor who's used to dealing with, you know, students who will like take a whole online class. But of course, realistically, time affluence, like not everybody's going to get a chance to do that. Yeah, but lots of people have a half hour, they could listen to a podcast in their car. And so we thought, how can we take all the insights we've taught our Yale students in this class and yeah. put them into a podcast form so people can learn more? So it's online now. The feed is up there if you want to subscribe. Oh, okay. Wherever you get your podcast. We launch officially on September 17th. We'll have 10 episodes. We're also doing some work on our website, thehappinesslab.fm where you can sign up and take these happiness quizzes and try to learn a little bit more about your own well-being levels to try to see if putting these things into effect actually helps you. Congratulations on starting the podcast. Are you still teaching the course? Like, how do you have time? My time athletes is a little better right now because I'm on uh, sabbatical. <laughs> so I'm on oh, good. leave, which is cool, which means I'm not teaching a class. I will be back next year. The hope is that you know, Yale students have to skip one year, but they also have the podcast and the online class to check out too. Yeah, they'll have access to everything. Lori, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I'm really excited about the podcast. So thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much to Lori for being with us today. You can check out her course at Coursera and tune in to her new podcast, The Happiness Lab, wherever you get your podcasts. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at founders at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the App Store and check out Muse at choosemuse.com. We'll see you next time.